Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Thank you, Ryan. After hearing Ryan's testimony, uh, I'm ready to conclude in prayer, aren't you? That's good. As, as you were speaking, I was just thinking there are, how many Ryan Enders are there out there in the world that today don't know Christ, but a year from now will? And two years from now, we'll be giving a testimony, wearing a t-shirt that says, Jesus Christ is Lord, encouraging the snot out of a church full of people. Man, that's, we want to see more of that. So thank you for, for sharing that testimony. Please take heed to what Alex said. If you have a similar testimony, seek him out. We want to hear, we want to hear stories. So, well, good morning, church. Good morning. My name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here and glad to have all of you with us. We are going through a series through the gospel of Luke and we are in chapter 20. And Here in chapter 20, what we're looking at, we have a story of various Jewish leaders. They've been sparring with Jesus. They've been testing him and challenging him. They're trying to trap him with some kind of a theological gotcha question. And so last week, what we saw was they tried to trap Jesus with a political gotcha question. And Jesus, of course, outmaneuvered them and he silenced them. Well, today we've got a different kind of gotcha question. It is a gotcha question about marriage and sexuality. You know, sex, politics, religion, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Satan's playbook is pretty boring. He's, like, he's just running the same play over and over again because it works. Well, there he was running this playbook on Jesus, and this has been one of his go-to strategies But we're going to see how Jesus answers this question, and it is fascinating. It is fascinating, his answer. So let's dig in. Luke chapter 20, we're going to talk about marriage in the resurrection or marriage in the afterlife. Is there marriage in the afterlife? We're going to answer this question. Where's my, here we go. All right, let's hope our technology works. Luke chapter 20, verse 27. I want to read one verse, and I want to riff on it for a bit, and then we'll finish the text, okay? Verse 27, there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. Now, let's pause here. I want to talk to you about the Sadducees. We're more familiar with the the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees are the conservatives, hardliners of the day. Um, They were pretty well regarded. They were popular with the people. And the Sadducees, this is the only time in the Gospel of Luke where they're mentioned, only this once. And the Sadducees, um, if you'll forgive my anachronism, they were the liberals of the day. So they, uh, they were bitter rivals with the Pharisees. They hated each other. The Sadducees, they were part, most of them were part of the priestly class. So they were sort of aristocratic, lay aristocrats, but they held the power. They, they were more, a more powerful group and they sort of held the levers of power. And the thing here, it mentions the Sadducees deny that there's a resurrection. Well, that's, that's Luke being fairly generous with them. They deny about everything. Um, they den- he mentions they deny the resurrection here because it's pertinent to the story. But the Sadducees, they deny everything. They deny the resurrection, which he says here. They deny any sort of an afterlife. So this life is all you get. They deny the existence of spirits. So angels, demons, they deny that. Um, they would acknowledge God, uh, but in a more deistic way. So they would acknowledge uh, God, but they deny that God has any providential work in the world, that God is act- active in the lives of, our, uh, of people. And they pretty much uh, deny all of the Old Testament, except for the Pentateuch, which is the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Exodus Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's their whole Bible. It's just the Pentateuch. They rejected everything else. And they were, uh, you'd call that Hellenistic, which means they were sympathizers with the Roman government. Um, So they were, we would just say they're worldly. They were compromised and syncretized with the Romans. And their target was uh, basically the aristocratic elite social classes. That was who they focused their attention on. That's who Jesus is about to talk to. All right. Verse 28. So the Sadducees, they asked him a question saying, 
teacher, Moses, so Moses, books of Moses, all, all that they'll recognize. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, so no kids. And the second and the third took her, and likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. You see what they're doing? It's a classic trick. If you, if you want to deny something, if you want to uh, debunk something, classic trick is to use a whataboutism. So whataboutism is to find some exception to the rule that disproves the rule. So what about this, Jesus? And that's what they did. Their goal is to trap and discredit Jesus because Jesus threatens their power. Their strategy is to put forth a hypothetical situation regarding a doctrine that they denied. And the topic that they chose is marriage in the afterlife. But we already know, based on verse 27, that they deny the afterlife. So they, don't, they deny the resurrection. So classical, what about situation? A hypothetical scenario based on what is called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage. I'll give you a little bit of a background on this. Leveret marriage, it's taught in Deuteronomy 25. I'll read it to you here um, a little bit later on. But it's taught in Deuteronomy 25, so it's part of the Old Testament that the Sadducees do affirm. And um, the leveret marriage worked in this way. In the ancient world, the household estate would pass from father to son. So a, a father would preserve his legacy throughout the generations by having a son that would be the heir, a legitimate heir. And that was very important to them to be able to pass your estate from generation to generation and for that your son to carry on your name. So if a, if a husband died without an heir, then the estate itself is in jeopardy because, like it or not, the estate always stayed with the males. Uh, there's, there, are some, there is an exception. Um, I believe it's in the book of Joshua, but there, there is an exception. But on the whole, the estate passed through the males. So... This, if, if a husband died and he didn't have a son, then the estate itself was in jeopardy. And there was all kinds of, of ramifications of that that I won't, we're not going to tease out today. But that was really, it, it, it jeopardized the whole community, the whole tribe, if you had, over time, if, if the estate was not able to stay within the family. And so this, this idea of leveret marriage was the solution. And it wasn't just practiced by the Jewish people. Other, other uh, contemporary cultures like the Canaanites, they had a similar practice. Leveret marriage. So how it worked was the, uh, the leveret marriage provided an heir for the dead husband by having the widow marry the next of kin. So she would marry usually the dead husband's brother. And if she had a son through him, then that baby, that boy, would be considered the son of the dead husband, not of the one who actually fathered the child. So, and that child then would carry on the dead husband's name and the estate, the dead husband's estate would transfer, transfer to this child. Now, all this might seem weird to us, and it it made perfect sense in the ancient world for economic reasons, but it, in our time, it's weird, and we can just acknowledge that. We don't need to, to go into great detail about it. It's, it's a strange custom. We're much more sentimental about marriage. They were totally not sentimental about marriage in the ancient world. It's a practical thing, mostly. So this is it's a, it's a big cultural disparity, but it was a big deal to them, and you can see this in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is a classic case of a leveret marriage. So the Sadducees were taking this concept and pushing it to the extreme. They were saying, okay, there's this woman, and she outlived seven husbands. You'd think the guys eventually would get the, get the picture here. It's like, hey, this woman, is she poisoning the coffee? What's going on with this lady? She's bad news. Well, seven husbands she outlived, and then finally she died and didn't have a child. 
So then the Sadducees used this hypothetical situation. What about this Jesus? What about this woman and seven husbands and none of them had a son uh, with her? And so whose husband will she be in the resurrection? It's kind of like an ancient metaphysical bachelor episode. You know? <laughs> Who's going to be her husband in the resurrection? So, and they're trying to show the, that the doctrine of the resurrection is dumb. Like Jesus you got to know that there's nothing beyond this life. And here, let's demonstrate this. Let's take this leveret marriage law. Whenever you push it to the extreme, you're going to see how ridiculous it is. Because in the afterlife, it's going to be pretty awkward. You've got seven dudes that are all gathered around this lady going, Hey, sweetheart. Hey, sweetheart. Who are these other fellas saying the same thing? They all claim to be her husband. So who has the advantage here, Jesus? Come on. You know the resurrection is a dumb, absurd idea. That's what they were trying to do. So before we get into Jesus's response, I want to make two comments about the Sadducees. Two comments about the Sadducees. The first one is the Sadducees denied a whole Bible theology. The Sadducees denied a whole Bible theology. They cherry-picked the parts of the Bible that they liked, and they discarded the rest. Now, that is a common thing. A lot of people do that. And so whenever they tried to trick Jesus, they went to the part of the Bible they still agreed with, and they cherry-picked this story to put Jesus to the test. Now, there's a, there's a little thing that Jesus says in Matthew's version of this story. I want to read it to you. This is from Matthew 22. So Matthew's telling the same story as Luke, but he added this little detail. Jesus answered them, "'You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God.'" You, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So Jesus is saying, you don't know the Bible that you claim that you're representing. You don't know the Bible. You don't know what leveret marriage is all about. You don't understand the scripture that you're using to test me with. Another one, this is from the Apostle Paul. So this is 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul so this is after the resurrection of Jesus. This is in the church time. Paul, speaking about all of the Old Testament, says all Scripture, not just the Pentateuch, but the Psalms, the book of Proverbs, the wisdom literature, the prophets, all Scripture is breathed out by God. That's where we get the word inspiration, like spirit, inspire, inspiration, breathed out by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Paul is saying the, the, whole, the whole Old Testament would have been what Paul immediately had in view, but by extension, the whole Bible, including this letter that was, was later you know, recognized to be divinely inspired, all of, this, all of the Bible is inspired by God, God breathed it out, and it's profitable for the various things that Paul mentioned here. So our theology then, we need to make sure that whatever our theological beliefs, it can account for the whole Bible's theology and not just the coffee mug verses that are really encouraging whenever you get up in the morning, but the whole Bible. And that means there's going to be parts of the Bible that are uncomfortable or awkward or that challenge us, make us feel unpleasant. We have to have a whole Bible theology and not a cherry-picked verse theology. There's a Andy Stanley. He's pretty famous for making this statement about the Old Testament and the New Testament. He says, what we need to do is just focus on Jesus and the resurrection and unhitch the, the story of Jesus from the Old Testament, which is, I won't tell you, I won't say exactly what I think it is, but let me just say it is unwise. That's my, that's my restrained comment about it. But what he is saying is that it, it's like cutting off all of the, the, the Old Testament. That's three-fourths of the Bible. I mean, that is so much history and theology. It's the story of God and the, God's works of salvation in his people. And Jesus himself, he, is presented, he presented himself and the gospels present him as the new Moses, as the one who fulfills all that the Old Testament anticipated. So we can't just unhitch Jesus from the Old Testament. It'd be like just being stuck in midair. It's Jesus is his, the identity of Christ and all the meaning and significance of Jesus is rooted in all that was in the Old Testament. But what happens is, is, uh, is that there, there's this temptation to 
to find the parts of the Bible that we like, that are familiar to us, and we build our lives around a handful of passages. Now, whenever a person is a newer Christian, you're going to find certain scriptures that mean a lot to you, and so you'll focus on those, and those will be uh, a great source of comfort for you, and that's fine. But over time, you'll learn more scripture. And then over time, you will put different scriptures together until you start to, to see more of the big picture. And that's just part of our growth and maturity in Christ. What we can't do is take a handful of cherry-picked Bible verses and say, that's all that there is. That's all I need to affirm from the Bible. We can't do that. We have to have a whole Bible theology. A lot of times, it's the parts of the Bible that make us most uncomfortable that are the parts that we most need. That's the first thing. They denied a whole Bible theology. Second thing, the Sadducees built their careers on doctrines they denied rather than doctrines they asserted. They built their careers on doctrines they denied rather than putting forth doctrines positively that they asserted. So this tactic of using whataboutisms is finding an exception that proves the rule. So somebody has a rule. Here's something that we believe. So in this case, um, the, the, the people would believe there is a resurrection. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is a God of, of the living, not God of the dead. There will someday be an afterlife where we all are with God. That was even at the, in the time of, of Jesus uh, in, the, you know, in the first century, people believed in some, in some afterlife. That was a common belief. But the Sadducees, now we can deny that. They just, and, so, and they built a name for themselves. I mean, that's how... That's how Luke describes them here in verse 27. It's like, who are the Sadducees? Well, they're the ones that deny the resurrection. That's who they are. All they're known for is what they deny. So this whataboutism is is a way of avoiding difficult doctrines or things that are hard to prove, things that that we can't exactly explain with the satisfaction that we would like. So it's a, let me think of it this way. If the Bible teaches God created them male and female. Somebody might want to deny that with a whataboutism. It's like, well, what about intersex? Intersex is where you have a human that manifests characteristics of both male and female. And this is kind of a classic gotcha uh, objection. And so they would say, well, because of this, this thing exists, this exception exists, therefore we can deny the fact that God created us male and female and from that conclude, well, sexuality is on a spectrum. You have any number of different genders because you have this one exception. But that is, that's a what about is, I mean, that person, I would say, doesn't know the scriptures or the power of God that would make that objection. Because God does create us male and female, and the fact that there's intersex is a condition that is brought about by the fall. So, you know, uh, if you have, if you'd say, well, human beings have two legs, well, some people are born with one leg. Some people are born without any legs at all. Does that mean that we have to deny the fact that we're born with two legs? Of course not. That is, that is a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's false. It is a, is a false assertion. It is denying something using an exception to disprove the rule. So whataboutism is not a constructive contribution to a topic. It's, it's an evasion it's a way of, of dismissing something that somebody else has asserted. Nine times out of ten, the what about question indicates somebody trying to deny something important, and that indicates a rebellious and hard-hearted heart. The easiest thing in the world is to build a career on denying the beliefs of others rather than asserting beliefs of your own. It's easy to do. Denial is always easier than belief. Unbelief is easier than belief, especially in matters of faith. So one person could say, I believe in God. Somebody else could say, there is no God. Prove it. Somebody could say, the Bible is God's word. Somebody else could say, no, it isn't. Prove it. Prove it's God's word. Somebody could say, well, God created us male and female. And somebody else could say, no, he didn't. There's intersex. There's this what about exception that disproves the rule. Denial is easier than belief. Now you have some people that do the hard work of studying scripture, observing the world. They're developing their own convictions. And then they assert a truth 
about those things. And then they promote their beliefs. They promote that truth by building coalitions with other people who hold the same view. And then they, they build confessional statements and catechisms around that truth. They sing songs, they write songs, they write books based on those convictions. And then to protect and promote those beliefs, they build institutions because these truths are precious to them. And then other people come along, like the Sadducees. They admire all that's been built, but not the beliefs that built it. And so they undermine it. They think they can improve upon it by denying some of the more difficult aspects of those beliefs, the things that they deem more controversial. They don't need to assert anything positive. They just need to forcefully deny what other people have asserted. And so these modern-day Sadducees are couriers of compromise. They're tearing down what other people have built up. And all they have to do is deny, 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 just like the Sadducees did. Here's an easier way. This way is more palatable. This way would attract more people. This way would bring in more income. It's a pragmatic strategy. It It doesn't affirm the necessary truths. It is built on human wisdom. I'll give you an example. Right now, in the Southern Baptist Convention, Rick Warren is leading an effort to get the Southern Baptist Convention to affirm women pastors, even though our confessional document, the Baptist Faith and Message, says that the office of pastor is limited to biblically qualified men. He's denying that doctrine, saying like, well, the future, if we want to have a positive future, we need to, we need to move away from that. I mentioned Andy Stanley already. He's doing the same thing, but in another way. He's denying the Bible's teaching about sexual immorality and pushing in more of an LGBTQ affirming direction. This is the way it's always been. Faithful men and women create things and build things because they love things. They have a a passion to promote things that are important to them. Satan comes along in the guise of other people, and he captures them and tears them down. This goes from everything from our children to our institutions. So we always need to be building and creating and then protecting what we've built. Let's look at Jesus' response. Verse 34. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. So this age, that's right now, they marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, so this is a different age than this age, right? To that age and to the resurrection from the dead, Jesus is just coming right out and say it, I'm affirming the thing that you've already denied. They neither marry nor are given in marriage for, this is a, like a purpose clause, for, here's a reason a rationale, a basis for what I just said. They cannot die anymore because they're equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. We have this age, which is people are married and given in marriage. And then we have that age, which is the age of the resurrection. And in that age, they are not married or given in marriage for, and he gives this rationale, They cannot die anymore, that's one, because they're equal to angels, and because two, they are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So here's Jesus refuting this, let me just go ahead and finish reading the text. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead but of the living. You need to be alive to be able to recognize a God. He is a God of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared ask him any question. Okay, so Jesus refutes refutes the Sadducees by addressing the issue of marriage and resurrection, and he makes this striking point, and this is where I want to drill down a little bit more in the rest of our time. Marriage is not an eternal fixture in God's creative purpose. In the resurrection, marriage will be replaced with something better. 
What I mean is this, marriage serves a divinely ordained purpose in this life, in this age, but that purpose does not carry over in the same way into the next age. So in the ancient world, people understood marriage having a purpose of procreation and companionship, and that's a you know, we, I think we see that pretty clearly in Scripture. Two primary purposes of marriage is procreation, but also companionship. So without marriage, presumably, you wouldn't be having sex. And that would mean that there's no procreation. So I take this to mean that in heaven, there are no babies. And you might think, oh, that's, that's kind of sad. Well, stay with me because I don't think it is sad. But the sounds that we hear now of, of babies talking and chattering and crying sometimes, those are not sounds that we'll hear in heaven from babies. No human being that you'll meet in heaven was born there. There won't be anybody like, uh, I, was, I just thought of this, the guy in the Matrix, you know, he was like, I was born here, you know, not, you know in the, on the Nebuchadnezzar, that guy, Tank, I think is his name. <laughs> Forget it. You don't know. <laughs> I'm dating myself with my movie references. I think the movie came out in 1999. A lot of y'all weren't even born then. Well, you know there's this movie called The Matrix, right? Well, you can go watch it sometime. There's nobody in heaven that'll say, I was born here in heaven. No human being, anyway, can say they were born in heaven. All human beings will be born here, in this, in this earth. Born of a woman, born in the natural way through marrying and being given in marriage because procreation is one of the primary purposes of marriage. So every human in heaven will have been born on, uh, born on earth, and that's just like us. Everyone, everybody be the same. We're all born in sin, and we're all saved by grace if we're in heaven. Nevertheless, even though there's no marriage or sex or babies in heaven, that doesn't mean there's no family. Now, I want to show you what Jesus was getting at whenever he refuted their question. The Sadducees believe that leveret marriage the law of leveret marriage proved that the resurrection was absurd. Because they're saying like, well, if you got leveret marriage, then you get to the resurrection. You've got all these dudes that can say, she's my wife. No, she's my wife. No, she's my wife. Who gets to be her husband in the resurrection? See, Jesus, this is an absurdity. There is no such thing as a resurrection. And of course, Jesus says, you know neither the scripture or the power of God. You don't know what you're talking about. The resurrection fulfills the Leveret marriage law, and that's what I want to show you. What did the Leveret law, Leveret marriage law provided for the dead husband was two things. The Leveret marriage law provided the dead husband with a son and with a name. A son and a name. Let me show you. This is Deuteronomy chapter 25. This is the text that the Sadducees were making their case with. So this is all the way back in Deuteronomy, book of Moses. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her, meaning marry her and have children with her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Leverett marriage provided number one, come back, number one, a son, and number two, a name. This was a source of comfort for men in the ancient world. Say, like, if I die, before I have a son, which that was so important to have a son. If I die without a son, that doesn't mean I'm forgotten forever. That doesn't mean that my estate just evaporates into thin air and all the vultures swarm in and kind of rifle through all my stuff and take it all away to, to the four winds. No, my estate remains intact until a next of kin marries my widow, has a son with her, and then that son, which he technically fathered, will be my son, he will carry on my name, and my estate will stay within the family. Now, that wasn't merely just for his own sake, sentimentally, but also was to make sure that the land allotments stayed secure within the nation. It was a way of providing justice to make sure everybody had access to land, which was where they, that, the land is what fed them. That's, that was their life, was, was living from the land, literally living off the land. 
So Jesus is telling them, this Old Testament law of leveret marriage finds fulfillment in the very resurrection that they are denying. So God created marriage and sex for, the pur- for this particular purpose, and once that purpose is accomplished in this life, there's no longer need for it in the next age, in the resurrection. So just to review where we've been. In this age, the purpose of marriage is procreation and companionship, which is from Genesis 1, 26 to 28, fill the earth and subdue it, populate the earth with people. More and more life, more and more life comes from this single pair. Marriage is the means through which God accomplished that purpose of filling the earth with people. So in this age, procreation was necessary to fill the earth. God created it that way. Now in a fallen world, that purpose is short-circuited by death. So let's say human beings lived 20 minutes and then died every time, 20 minutes. It's like, well, you could have life, but the life would not live long enough to actually fill the earth. And since, you know, even, even having, you know, a normal lifespan, you're now able, by God's grace that sustains us, even in a fallen world, we're able to live long enough to presumably have enough children to, one, have an heir, have at least one son, but also to have a family that will push the human race into the future so that when I die and when you die, the world still has people in it because that was God's intent from the beginning. God wants a world full of people. Genesis 1, 26 to 28 testifies to that fact. So in a fallen world, death brings human life to an end. Procreation represents the future. Procreation is where the future comes from. So if, if nobody on planet Earth from this moment on ever procreated again, about 100 years, there would be no human beings on the planet. So procreation is eschatological, we could say. Eschatology meaning the study of the last things. It has a, as a future orientation. It pushes us, propels the human race forward. So as a man reaches the end of his life, he can know if he has a son that his son will carry on his name in the lives of his own sons. And as a woman reaches the end of her life, she can know that the future is being populated in both this life and in the next through children that she will bear. And so this cycle that has continued on from the very beginning since the fall in Genesis 3, this death and birth, death and birth cycle, it does propel humanity forward, both in this life, but far into the future until Jesus returns. Then we all go to heaven, and I'm saying that synonymously with the resurrection, but we're all, we all reach this period, which is known as the resurrection, when that purpose is fulfilled and there's no longer any need for more people to be brought into existence. Procreation will propel us forward in this life. Once we reach heaven, there's no more procreation. There will be, I, I am drawing a conclusion here that I think is a good and necessary inference, so I'm not too dogmatic about this, but in my view, in the resurrection, there's not going to be more and more people added, but there will be a fixed number. On day one, it will be the same number of humans as there there is on day 18 trillion. Same number of people. So birth and marriage are eschatological. And and I think we see evidence of this also in the fact that salvation itself is likened to a birth. You know, Jesus in John chapter 3, he talks to Nicodemus, and he said, nobody... Uh, can know God until he is born again. And Nicodemus is like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You gotta, I mean, i got to climb back up into my mother's womb and be born again? It's kind of crazy, Jesus. And imagine Jesus might have said, you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. No, Nicodemus, I'm being metaphorical here. You need to be spiritually reborn. But being saved is a type of birth. It's a rebirth. So that's, that's the uh, procreation part. But There's also the purpose of companionship or sonship or family that marriage also provides for us. So marriage joins two people together in this covenant union, and that covenant union binds the generations together. So husband and wife, father and mother, son and daughter, we're all in one sense bound together because we all descended from a single pair, Adam and Eve in the garden. That is this life. In the age to come, we will all share a common ancestry by our common father, God the Father, who is the God over us all, and we are all sons of God in the age to come. 
Everyone will be resurrected to eternal life. And once again, the, the social or companionship, relational purpose of marriage is fulfilled in the resurrection. So in the resurrection, these two purposes of marriage that are indicated in Deuteronomy 25 are fulfilled. So in the, in the resurrection, we are all sons of God through faith. We all have this companionship uh, fulfilled, and we all have a name, which means we, we, are, we have a, a common ancestry from God our Father, and our name will not be blotted out. We're not going to die. It's going to, the resurrection is the answer to this fact that we might die or that our name might be blotted out because of death. But in the resurrection, our name will never be blotted out because we have an eternal name. And so Jesus says, I want to go back and look at verse 36 again so you see what I'm, where I'm getting this. He said, these things are true for they cannot die anymore. So he's talking about this is why there's no marriage in the afterlife. Jesus said, for, which is a statement of purpose, they, meaning Christians. Let me just write that in here. They is Christians. They cannot die anymore. So we we don't die. Procreation is necessary to replace people that are dying. In the resurrection, we don't die. So there's no need to replace us. We live forever. How do we know we die? Well, or how do we know we will never die? Well, we know we cannot die because we are equal to the angels. Angels don't die. So that's, that is life. Now here is uh, sonship. In the resurrection, they, I supplied this in parentheses here, we, they, are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So in the resurrection, we'll live forever. We have an eternal name and we have an eternal sonship. Because of our shared heritage, we are all descended from one heavenly father. So the meaning of marriage and the purpose of marriage and all that comes with it of procreation and companionship, all of these things are fulfilled in Christ in the resurrection. Jesus is the bridegroom, the church is the bride, and everyone individually are heirs. We are all sons of God. Now, when I talk about sonship, uh, I think the fellows will probably think, well, that's cool, but the ladies, you might think, yeah, it's weird. Like, what do you mean we're sons? Where, where does that leave me? If, if some of you ladies, you might have had these thoughts before whenever you encounter sonship in the New Testament. And a lot of Bible translators, they try to fix the issue by saying, uh, sons and daughters. But legally speaking, the estate always went to the son. So you're not really fixing the issue of, of an heir of eternity by merely just papering it over by saying, well, this means sons and daughters. Sonship really means something. So if you're wondering, where does this leave women? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Here's the answer. Both men and women are sons. Because sonship is not about your sexuality right now. Being a son of God is because of men and women being in Christ who is the son. So women are in Christ because you're in Christ. Christ is the son. You are now a son of God. Men, if you're in Christ, it's not because you're a male It's because you're in Christ that you're a son of God. And Jesus is the true heir. We inherit the estate not because, fellas, we don't have an advantage here. All of us are in Christ, meaning we're all sons, whether you are male or female. You're thinking, oh, where do you get that in the Bible? I'm glad you asked. Let me show you. Galatians 3. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. What do you mean by all? All the guys? No. Everyone, men and women, you are all sons of God through faith. So when I have faith in Jesus Christ, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that is the desire for you to know Jesus and have faith in him. And by faith in Jesus, you will then be in Christ meaning Christ and his relationship to the Father now becomes your relationship to the Father because you are in Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
And then here's a famous verse that is often used to deny gender distinctions, but actually it highlights gender distinctions because it says no matter who you are, where you come from, whether you're male or female, everybody comes to Christ the same way. You're all in Christ through faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, that means son, and heirs, there it is, son of God, that's Jesus Christ. So you are heirs because you are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, you are all Jew, Greek, slave, free, male and female, it doesn't matter. Through faith, you are all in Christ. And if you are in Christ, that means you are an heir. You are a son. And that means the Father recognizes you not because of who you are, not because of anything you contribute. He recognizes you because he recognizes his son, and you are in the son. So if you think that's weird, ladies, don't worry about it. Because, guys, we have to deal with being the bride of Christ. So... We got something weird to deal with too. But that's, that, that does, that's not like gender bending in the Bible. It's saying these are patterns of relationship, family patterns, household structure that is the shape of our redemption. We understand redemption in, because it comes to us in the shape of something familiar. It's a household. And of course it should because God designed it this way. So the point is that there's no marriage in heaven because it isn't necessary. The purpose of marriage is fulfilled whenever Christ returns and that it, it is eclipsed by something better. So whenever we get to heaven, every cup will be full, every heart will be glad, all pain and loss and heartache will be over. So in heaven, there's no more broken marriages, there's no more divorce, there's no more widows, there's no more loneliness, and there's no more rejection. In heaven, everyone will experience these, these unbroken, this, this union with God and with one another that is completely transparent, completely free and open, completely real. There's no pretense, and it is better than anything that we've ever experienced in any earthly relationship. It is completely satisfying in a way that only God can satisfy us. God is not God of the dead. He's God of the living. We all live to him. So a couple just points of application as we wrap up here. To those who are married happily and to those who are not. So for those who are happily married, the thought of being in heaven and not being married anymore might feel a little disappointing. And that's where I, I would just challenge each of us, because I would put myself in that category. Tomorrow is my 24th wedding anniversary. Thank you very much. 24 years. And I have been happy for all 24 of them, because I love my wife and I'm happily married, and that's a, that's a wonderful grace of God uh, that I don't deserve. So the thought that I might be in heaven someday and walk by and I see this woman, I'm like, something familiar about her. (laughs) I know, you were my wife (laughs) back on earth. I don't think it'll be like that. I don't think we need to worry about missing out or being sad. I don't think we'll get to heaven and think, man, I I really miss being married. I really miss that. If, if only, if only I could go back and just, you know, spend another day on a sinful, fallen, broken world, there will be so much joy and so much just delight within us. We can't even fathom what it would be unthinkable for us to even want to go back for a microsecond. So we have to know the scriptures and the power of God, what God will create for us. If you have the perfect marriage, the best marriage in the world, what God is reserving for you is something that far eclipses even the best marriage here. So you won't get to heaven and feel like you're missing out. I don't know what the nature of your relationship will be in heaven. The Bible doesn't give us that answer, and I don't want to speculate too much. But what I do know is that whatever joy and love and intimacy and partnership that you have in your, in your healthy marriage in this life God has something better in store for you, something that is not corrupted by the fall, but something that is glorious and beautiful and eternal, and you won't miss anything from this life. Now, for those of you who are not happily married, 
because either you're missing the married part, you're single, or you're missing the happily part. You're married and you're like, hey, this isn't very happy right now. I want to say something to you. Even though there's no marriage in the next life, that doesn't give us the right to devalue marriage in this life or to cast it aside or give up on it. Don't give up on your marriage. Marriage is God's tool of sanctification. Now, it works in different ways with different people. But marriage and having children and all that comes with family life is a tool of sanctification. So let God do his work in your life. You need to believe the scriptures and the power of God. Don't lose sight of the power of God and what God can do in your marriage. I've known a lot of people that spent the first 10 years of their life hating one another. And then... God broke through, God did a miracle, God did a work, and that work is not just it magically happens and everything snaps into place, but that it's a fruit of the effort that they're both putting in of their own obedience and sanctification. So if your marriage is terrible, don't give up on it, don't devalue it, don't cast it aside and just like, well, I guess it's just drudgery for the rest of my life. I guess I just have to put up with life being awful. Don't give up on your marriage. And if you need help, there are people here that will help you, and I would be more than happy to talk to you. If you're, if you're not married and you want to be, again, trust the scriptures and the power of God. It could be a temptation to devalue marriage or just to, to, to view it with contempt or envy. Don't be like the Sadducees. Like, set your hope fully on God that the desire for marriage is a good desire. Even though it's not an eternal institution the way we know it here, that, that doesn't mean that it is wrong to desire it or that you should just give up hope. It is good to desire marriage and family life. Those are good desires. God is honored in those desires, and God is honored in your faith as you wait for God to fulfill those things. But don't give up on it and don't just assume, well, I guess it doesn't matter and, and view it with contempt. I know that could be a temptation. Anytime you, uh, the proverb says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Anytime you set your hope on something and it's just constantly delayed. And that goes the same with wanting children. All of these things, they hold together trust in the scriptures and the power of God. God is doing a work and whatever joy that you want and is being denied to you at this point is part of God's sanctification. Don't begrudge the Lord for that. He knows what he's doing. But keep praying, keep trusting. And Hope that God will give that to you. It's not bad or wrong to desire it. It's a good thing to desire. For everybody, regardless of your marital status, the degree of happiness you experience regarding marriage right now, in whatever station you're in, our hope is always, needs to be set on God. It needs to be eternal. God knows what he's doing. I don't think that God is holding out on you. Don't think that God has uniquely singled you out for affliction be it the affliction of singleness or the affliction of childlessness or the affliction of a terrible marriage or the affliction of just conflict a lot in an otherwise okay marriage, whatever it is. Like, don't think that God has singled you out to punish you and torture you and be mean to you. That's not his heart. His heart is to sanctify you and to sanctify your spouse or future spouse or sanctify you as you wait for a spouse. But God is not keeping pleasure from you. God is training you to trust him, to trust the scripture, and to prepare your heart for eternal pleasure. He's enlarging, enlarging your capacity for joy in eternity. So it takes a lot of faith to believe that. That kind of faith isn't natural. It doesn't just happen automatically. So it needs to be cultivated in your life. Believe it, trust it, hope for it, cling to it. Keep your eyes on Christ, but don't give up the hope. The perfect groom is prepared for us, or he is preparing for us a kind of heavenly joy beyond anything we can imagine. So believe that. Take comfort in that today. As we celebrate and come to the table, believe the Lord for these things. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the way you've designed the world, the way you've created things. Thank you for the gift of marriage and all that it represents. Thank you, God, that you love us enough to create marriage and the, the relationship and the union that it provides and the children that come from it. And we thank you for that gift. Personally, Lord, I thank you for my marriage and what a blessing it is. And for all the other marriages here that are a blessing. 
And Lord, I pray for those whose marriages do not feel like a blessing right now, even though in your providence it is, and that it doesn't feel that way because you've got something you're doing in the lives of each of the people involved in it. And there's sanctification and repentance and healing and trust and faith and forgiveness that need to happen on the path to their sanctification. And those temporal present trials are preparing for them an eternal weight of glory beyond what can compare to anything in this life. So give those folks hope in their marriages. And pray for those that are awaiting marriage and they're not married yet and they don't know if they ever will and it's a source of great pain and 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 trial and, and heartache and frustration and feelings of loss or rejection and impatience and all the temptations that come along with that, Lord, I pray for your mercy to, to, uh, to just care for them, remind them of your love that you are not holding out on them. You're not targeting them for punishment or affliction, Lord. I pray that they will trust the scriptures, believe the power of God, and I ask you, God, you will answer their prayers, remind them that you hear their prayers and come through for them. Same for those that want children and don't have them. You're a good God. You're a good father. Marriage is, earthly marriage is a source of the extremes that we experience. For some, it's the source of great joy and, and, and blessing. And for others, it's a source of the greatest trial that they know. Marriage represents the full range of human experience. And so we ask you, God, for your mercy your power and grace to be upon every marriage, every individual in this room, every child that would one day be married, even in the way we think and talk about marriage, Lord, help us to be sanctified and pure. Help us to love what you love, hate what you hate. Help us to uphold the whole doctrine, whole Bible doctrine of marriage. Help us to care for one another. Help us to be patient with one another because these are sensitive topics, especially in 2023, when marriage and sexuality are under assault and it's such a tense topic. We need your grace. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the perfect bridegroom preparing a spotless bride and we await the wedding supper when human marriage comes to an end and we await the resurrection where we will enjoy all the blessings you have prepared for us. Meet us now as we come to the table. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.